This is an RNZ podcast. Yeah, I mean, the, the BBC had known about Savile for many years. I mean, there's stuff going back to 1973 where the head of Radio 1 and Radio 2, now dead, um, called him in, had him, you know, interrogated, realised, knew that he was bringing underage girls back to his flat overnight. They didn't even tell him to stop doing it. All they cared about was that it wasn't going to come out in the press. Are you sure it's not going to come out in the press? Last month, Kim Hill had a long and revealing conversation on RNZ National with British journalist Marion Jones, who made a startling documentary 10 years ago, revealing how Jimmy Savile had offended over the decades that he'd also been a British media superstar at the BBC. Initially, he and his colleague Liz McKean were making an expose for the BBC, making all this a huge act of whistleblowing, he told Kim Hill. Absolutely, yeah, I was 100% in a whistleblower position. Uh, the BBC had covered up for Savile for 30 years. Now they were covering up that cover-up by refusing to put out our film, exposing him as who he was. And then when ITV finally broadcast their film, the BBC covered up again. They said we had not investigated Savile. They said that it would just been a couple of calls by a work experience girl. And myself and Liz McKean, my reporter, we just said, we're not going to go along with that. There is no way. We are going to tell the truth. Marion Jones' film was eventually aired by rival broadcaster ITV, kicking off a fresh police investigation after Savile died back in 2011. And he also features in the Netflix retrospective that's currently putting Savile back into the spotlight, a British horror story. But it's not just what Savile got away with that makes it all so alarming. It's the media's role in it. Plenty of other people in the media knew at least some of what Savile was up to. In 1990, journalist Lynn Barber wrote in her paper The Independent that most of her peers in British journalism thought Savile was a paedophile, and comedians even joked about it obliquely from time to time on primetime TV, including, astonishingly, Jimmy Savile himself. You used to be a wrestler, didn't you? Is that right? I Are still you? am. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm feared in every girls' school in this country. Didn't you live in a caravan for many, many years? Twelve years I lived in a motor caravan, yes. Marvellous life. Um, you've heard of New Age travellers, haven't you? We have, yes. I'm an old age traveller. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do in the caravan? A anybody I can lay my hands on. Jimmy Savile hiding in plain sight there on the news quiz Have I Got News For You in 1999. So why were his life and crimes unreported till after he died? Well, Marion Jones told Kim Hill that it was partly because of libel laws, but also because whistleblowers were so vulnerable. Once the truth was out, the BBC contacted tens of thousands of former employees, including me, to ask if we knew anything more about it. It was too little, far too late, and as stark a case study as you could ever get of the failure of protected disclosure. Now, here in New Zealand, the Protected Disclosures Act was passed in the year 2000 to back up people blowing the whistle on misconduct at work if they had raised concerns with their employer first. And this month, it was replaced with a new act, the Protected Disclosures Protection of Whistleblowers Act 2022, which extends protection to those who go to an appropriate external authority. The Chief Ombudsman is one such authority, and he hailed the change, saying our reputation as an honest society free from corruption depends upon it. But anyone exposing wrongdoing to the media will have no extra protection at all. 
In Australia, some states protect workers who go to the media as a last resort. New South Wales, for example, protects those who haven't had success having what they call honest concerns properly investigated. And one of the cases that prompted a review of our law here in the first place was that of a security guard who did just that. Back in 2010, Lydia Moate, with the backing of her union, told the Dominion Post newspaper that her employer had encouraged staff to cheat in their training. But there was nothing that she, or the union, or the Employment Relations Authority, or the newspaper, could do about her subsequent sacking. So why don't the media also count as an appropriate authority under our brand new whistleblowing law? Well, back in 2018, the initial discussion document said that people could simply get it wrong, or worse, deliberately make a false claim, which could cause unfair reputational damage to the people involved in the public domain. And that fear was echoed by Business NZ in its submission. Providing protection would open the door to get-even complaints, they said, which, even if found to be untrue, would do harm on a no-smoke-without-fire basis. Now, at that time, TVNZ's general counsel, Brent McAnulty, said that all this was based on an unfair assumption, that the media wouldn't investigate whistleblowers' claims before reporting them. He said compliance with broadcasting standards codes and the media council principles also helped to ensure accuracy and fairness, in addition to journalists' own professional ethics. And he cited some examples from TVNZ reporting of wrongdoing that was definitely in the public interest. For example, the melamine milk contamination in China, where Fonterra managers knew all about it but didn't announce a public recall, and Pike River Mine employees complaining about safety issues after the management had shut them down. And he also cited reports of inappropriate behaviour in Cycling New Zealand, which were not acted upon until one news revealed concerns that had previously been raised internally by both athletes and staff. Now, that was four years ago, and as we now know from the news more recently, subsequent investigations are still revealing serious shortcomings at Cycling New Zealand. But his was the only media submission before the deadline, and the select committee evidently wasn't persuaded by it. The bill that went through for the third reading recently was unchanged in that respect, and only one independent journalist, Jason Brown, argued the case for extending protection for the media in a submission that's publicly available. There's nothing at all from the outfit that represents the mutual interests of the news media here, the New Zealand Media Freedom Committee. Debbie G is a former Radio New Zealand and TV3 reporter who's now a director of the local branch of the anti-corruption watchdog Transparency International. She's also the author of Taken for a Ride, a study of how Joanne Harrison defrauded the Ministry of Transport even after at least four colleagues blew the whistle but were ignored. So is Debbie G disappointed that the media aren't included in the new whistleblowing law and disappointed that the media didn't press for that? I'm not particularly disappointed or surprised because I understand the media was specifically excluded from the consultations. I don't mean the media participating, but the question of um, protective disclosures to the media was specifically excluded from the consultation that was launched. So it's not really surprising that uh, there were so few um, submissions from media organisations because they, they weren't being asked to. Well, back in 2018, at the start of the process, Business New Zealand argued that if protections were extended to people who, who go straight to the media, those people might exploit that to launch vexatious and unfounded complaints, just their grievances, you know, about their employers. Is that actually a fair point from them? Yes, it is a fair point from them. Uh, 
Internal disclosures are the sort of processes you have internally to allow people to safely make disclosures about uh, serious misconduct within their organisations. The external ones aren't just to the media. They are to some form of external party, such as a minister or some jurisdictions, a designated organisation that does that. So media um, whistleblowing to the media, uh, which is sometimes called leaking, is just one form of disclosure. And there is this potential that people will not go through the other channels available to them before they go to the media. So our view is that people tend to go to the media because, A, they don't know where to go, B, they don't trust where they're supposed to go, and they've kind of reached the end of their tether. So the objective is really to find ways for them to address their issues, their concerns, the... Um, through means that would satisfy those requirements. So perhaps they wouldn't necessarily need to go to the media. It's, it's actually estimated only about 1% of whistleblowing uh, goes to the media anyway. The Joanne Harrison case, uh, fraud at the Ministry of Transport. Now, there, there the reporting only hit the headlines you know, when it was effectively too late to stop um, the, the fraud. Um, you noted that when Harrison's offences became public knowledge, there were four former staff members alleged in the media that they'd made attempts to raise concerns about her behaviour and they hadn't been properly investigated. Is this a case then that shows us that had they had the opportunity to go to the media as well as making what turned out to be ineffective internal disclosures, that we could have had a better result as far as the public's concerned? I think it's a case for having some other mechanism than internal reporting available to them, not necessarily the media. In fact, a lot of people who um, want to raise issues would love to have another but also confidential means or channel to, to, in which to raise those uh, concerns. So if there was, say, you know, some form of, I don't know, ombudsman or central agency that was responsible for these things, many people would feel more comfortable taking it there. Um, it's also important to note that at the time these concerns were raised at the Ministry of Transport, there was no actual evidence of, of fraud per se. What there was evidence of was repeated failures to follow clear procedures and policies in relation to contracting and procurement, which raised red flags with some people, and, they, and only one of them actually made a true protected disclosure about that. Others raised it through other means like internal audits. Uh, but they... Um, only went to the media after it had already become public. And I somehow doubt they would have gone to the media uh, before it became public. It was already in, in the courts when they mentioned that they'd tried to raise this earlier and had been ignored. Mm, so th that may in the end have been a case where the media might have been cautious even if those disclosures had been made to them because there was a process already underway. Yes, and if, if, at a point where, they, where those people made their disclosures uh, internally or tried to... Uh, as I say, there was no uh, criminal investigation underway. It was only some suspicions people had about this repeated um, non-compliance, which, if it had been caught earlier, would have potentially been um, uh, maybe maybe some some um, fraud in the in the area of a few thousand dollars rather than seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. But 
these people were only willing to come forward after they'd left the Ministry of Transport, come forward to the media, that is, after they left the Ministry of Transport and felt that their concerns had not only been ignored but in some cases had led to their premature departure from the, from the organisation. Well, you mentioned there, Debbie, that it's pretty rare for uh, people to uh, go outside of their organisation to blow the whistle uh, in the first place. Uh, and indeed, the Clean as a Whistle report on whistleblowing back in, I think, 2019, found 2% of people went outside uh, the organisation in the first instance, according to that report. Does that mean there wouldn't actually be any point in extending whistleblower protections to uh, people who tip off the media? Both Australia and Canada have mechanisms to protect uh, disclosures under very stringent circumstances if they do go to the media. So I think it's something that should be looked at in future. But before we get to that point, there are a lot of shortcomings in the new legislation that Transparency International New Zealand would probably rather see um, addressed before the media side of things, although if there was a second round of review, perhaps it could be included there. But there are, there are other areas where we think the, the new legislation is deficient. Well, that Clean as a Whistle report also uh, noted that the effectiveness of public whistleblower protections has been directly undermined by recent evidence to the extent to which journalists and media organisations can still be forced to reveal information about their confidential sources, just quoting from the report here, so as to jeopardise those sources, indeed, that they themselves could be targeted for receiving and publishing information uh, from those sources. Now, this is a bit of a worry, I think, for journalists, because we have had cases in recent years where media organisations have been searched by police and individual journalists uh, subjected to police investigations uh, looking for the, the source of contentious information. Do you think whistleblowers possibly fear the media just can't or won't protect their identity and that might explain why so few go to the media in the first place? I think that could definitely be a component of it. Many of them are doing it out of a sense of loyalty to the organisation they work for and and to their colleagues. They don't want to necessarily you know, put the reputation of the organisation they work for and, and therefore the people they work with into the public spotlight. But they do want some action taken. And even if it was found that perhaps their concerns were ill-founded, imagine in the Ministry of Transport case, if that had been reported to an external agency, not the media, it had been investigated and found out that Joanna Harrison was in fact what she claimed to be, which was just somebody who wasn't very good with process and detail. Uh, but that wasn't the case. They weren't followed through. So uh, most of them didn't want to have to go to the media to do that. Well, the minister in charge of this whole process has hailed this as a strengthening of whistleblower protections that will be uh, good for the public in, in the long run. So possibly the media feels slightly sore that they are not one of the external authorities people can now go to. But do you think after this whole process, which I think has lasted almost four years now, we are better protected and uh, public life is improved by uh, the changes to the new law? I think this is a real opportunity lost. This was a, a law that was 20 years old and this was a chance to give it a really thorough going over and to put some really much strengthened um, procedures in place, whether or not that included the media. And yes, it's been improved lightly in some areas, but it, it just doesn't go nearly far enough, particularly in terms of the support for the well-being of people who want to make protected disclosures. That's still 
deficient and it's still an area that needs to be looked at. And in fact, um, you know, the Ombudsman has been asked to do some further work on, on things that could be put in place. So it seemed uh, perhaps it was the pressures of COVID, uh, whatever it was, that this bill was, was simply um, watered down, really. Along with the procedures for reporting protected disclosures, a really important thing that goes along with this is the culture of an organisation, a culture that makes the processes clear, a culture that wants to hear people's concerns and encourages them to report internally so that things can be addressed and and improved. So it's not something that legislation can do, but there is a whole other area of work that needs to be done culturally uh, in, in New Zealand about and in other countries about making the term whistleblower uh, not carry the connotations that it sometimes has of negativity, but as somebody who actually cares about the integrity and transparency of the organisation that they work for and the people who they work with. Well, it's entirely coincidental, Debbie, but right now there are um, you know, questions being asked uh, of a media organisation itself at Television New Zealand and uh, the possibility of uh, misconduct of, of one of its um, star hosts who's resigned now with allegations about his personal conduct and that this could have been going on at the broadcaster overseas where he was working, Al Jazeera. Now we've, we've seen Television New Zealand come under fire for the way that their executives you know, haven't, uh, as so far, been willing to front up and answer questions in public, preferring to deal with this uh, in-house as much as they can. And parallels have been drawn with another broadcaster, MediaWorks, where uh, their chief executive, Cam Wallace, came into the job new and was confronted with misconduct among and, and her allegations of harassment and bullying among his staff and launched uh, employed a QC to launch a review of the company's culture as well as investigate specific instances. Uh, do you think that, that that approach is one that will give people... Uh, comfort that if they do blow the whistle or have done in the past, the process of investigating their complaints or dealing with them or not might even become part of a wider review of, of company culture if a company is really determined to confront it. De- definitely we want to see more of, of that sort of approach to, to allegations of misconduct. And I was we, one thing we were pleased to see was that the definition of serious misconduct was expanded beyond just, I think it was uh, serious, uh, it wasn't exactly the word serious fraud, but, but it was serious criminal activity was the original very narrow definition. So it has been expanded and we were pleased to see that. It's also interesting to note that this legislation really only applies to the New Zealand public sector and private or not-for-profit organisations that receive funding that way. So we thought that the reaction of some parts of the business community to the potential of having whistleblower legislation extended to them was kind of interesting and possibly a, a little narrow in its in its in its vision um, some of them said that this would be uh, really difficult for um, public se- private sector organizations to implement but in fact if you were a private sector organization and you really cared about your your culture your people and your reputation your brand um, you probably should be implementing such procedures voluntarily anyway it's Debbie G, a former Radio New Zealand and TV3 reporter who's now a director at the anti-corruption watchdog Transparency International NZ. She's also the author of Taken for a Ride, a study of how Joanne Harrison defrauded the Ministry of Transport over four years when at least four colleagues were ignored when they blew the whistle.